regional conflicts and every internal conflict in the region, Israel is always involved and always on the worst side, usually on the side, always on the side of the fascist reactionaries of the region. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman in California, and with me is my co-host Asa Winstanley in London. Asa, how are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Nora. Um, this is always the phase of January where it's like people are still saying Happy New Year when yeah. they've seen each other for the first time <laughs> or you know, communicated for the first time, but it's sort of getting towards the end of January, and it's like, do you still say Happy New Year or do you not? But people... But anyway, yes, Happy New Year. This is our first podcast of 2020. Yeah, I had a good holiday break. Um, I hope you did too. I did. Um, And it reminds me, actually, the first episode of the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I'm a big fan of. Um, Larry David's, the the, the first scene, uh, Larry David is uh, chastising someone for saying Happy New Year when it's, it's been about two weeks into the new year. He's like, yeah, isn't this enough? Like, haven't we done this enough already like i think we're ready to move on so yeah <laughs> i have i seen that episode i can't remember is at kirby enthusiasm is that the one with where there was the episode about the palestinian chicken yes palestinian chicken yes mm-hmm. yeah. that was that was i found that really funny yeah it's a great show it, I, I don't know if it was politically good or not i can't remember but i just remember that the episode was funny yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Larry David, um, po- being politically correct or not. But yeah, it's uh, the the new the new season looks to be as, as great as the as the rest. So, happy New Year! Not and then let's get it over. With. Well, uh, well, I yeah, <laughs> well, um, we uh, we had um, since we both had a good time over the holiday period. Um, we should probably now begin talking about, uh, you know, and then rest and relaxation with friends and family and whatnot. We should probably now begin talking about all the terrible things that happened. Yeah, and it, it started off um, pretty quickly with, I mean, it's always, there, there's always terrible things happening, obviously, all over the world. Um, but, uh, you know, two or two and a half days into the new year, Trump decided to assassinate Qasem Soleimani, the, the military general. Um, the the Iranian military general uh, who was helping to fight ISIS in Iraq. It was it was a really uh, dangerous and frightening uh, week or so there. Um, we weren't sure whether this was going to spark World War Three. Um, and uh, yeah, what what were you thinking around that time? And you know, this is already it's it's only been what three weeks into the new year, and and that happened already, and it's already kind of out of the news cycle, um, obviously. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was there was a really scary period there, wasn't there, for yeah. a week or so, where it just seemed that there was a serious danger of Trump beginning World War Three. And I think that we just, it's only due to the restraint of the Iranians, basically. Yeah. You know, that their response was actually very, very limited and almost symbolic, really. Yeah. Um, the uh, response uh, military strike on the American military base, occupation base in Iraq. Um, 
Yeah, so it's... Uh, but, you know, it was really an almost terrifying way to start the new year. Um, yeah. This um, leading, um, leading Iranian general and diplomat, you know, in, the, in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government um, and there on a diplomatic mission um, was assassinated you know yeah. murdered really and um it's uh it was was a hairy time there for a while um and i think that um it's good now at least that um trump has sort of signaled that he's backed off a bit um and that he wasn't gonna do any you know not keep escalating the situation um, Except with sanctions, he's he's now you know immediately right. after he said that he was tightening the sanctions, which seems absurd. Right. I, I don't know how much tighter the sanctions on Iran and the Iranian people can get, but yeah, uh, here we are. absolutely. Like the uh, uh, the American government and uh, the Israelis as well are a, a state of perpetual war, really, with Iran. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's. Uh, you know that that needs to end. Yep. Yes. <laughs> um, so we are really pleased to have back on the Electronic Intifada podcast uh, Asad Abu Khalil. He's a professor at uh, California State University, Stanislas, and um, uh, just a, a really um, incredible analyst and and thinker, um, and uh, you know someone who who can weave context and history into what is playing out now around the Middle East. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I think it was a really great interview, um, as always, with Assad, um, especially... Yeah, Assad is really good sort of value, value for money, as it were, um, <laughs> because he, you know, you can just sort of ask him a question and he'll just keep going, you know, and, he, and he's not blabbering either. He's giving um, yeah. really interesting context and fact after fact. And uh, just a really solid uh, analysis of the situation uh, in the Middle East and how Qasem Soleimani demonized uh, in the West, in the UK yeah. uh, and, and the US and throughout Europe as, the, as a really kind of uh, as a bogeyman right. um, is viewed very differently in the region That's for, right. by, the, by the peoples of the region. And, um, and you know, the, the importance of bringing Israel's... Um, roles and responsibilities into this as well, which was also conveniently, uh, deliberately left out of the discourse in the corporate media around this. So um, mm. I think without further ado, let's go to that interview that we did with Assad Abu Khalil. And um, Asa, it's great to be back with you on the Electronic Intifada podcast for 2020. Yeah. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Wynn-Stanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. This is our first episode of 2020, and we're delighted to have our good friend Assad Abu Khalil back on the show. 
Assad is a professor at California State University at Stanislas. He's the author of many books and the founder of the late, great, angry Arab news service. Assad, it's great to have you back on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. So just over 48 hours into the new year, uh, Trump ordered the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian military general who had successfully fought ISIS in Iraq and in the region. And we were all bracing for the U.S. to escalate and at the very possibility of Trump destroying the planet in a new world war. Iran responded by firing missiles at a U.S. military base, and the U.S. responded to that with tightening, devastating sanctions on the people of Iran. Assad, you watched this very carefully, obviously, as the situation was unfolding, especially from your lens as a media critic and historian of U.S.-Israeli imperialism in the Middle East. How can you assess what happened with the assassination of Soleimani and the reverberations that it has had since from Palestine to Lebanon to Iraq and to Iran? Uh, I think this was a significant event in the relationship of the United States with the region. And I think it's fair to say that previous U.S. presidents before Trump destroyed the Middle East on purpose. And this president may very well destroy it accidentally. Uh, I think previous presidents were very much aware of their role as captains of the ship of the U.S. empire. I mean, they were deliberately starting wars throughout the region, whether it's Obama or Bush and so on. This was part of how this U.S. empire became a war empire uh, after September 11, but even before. By the very end of the Cold War, the United States took it upon itself to try to impose its hegemony through wars throughout the region. And uh, since the 1990s, U.S. military action have not stopped once ever since. In fact, if you look at U.S. Air Force since the 1990s, overwhelmingly, they all got their training from bombing people of that region. Since the 1990s, like something like 70% of Air Force pilots received their uh, training in the 1990s from flying over Baghdad and bombing various sites and so on. Uh, this one was quite different because Trump, from his campaign, wanted very clearly and explicitly to disengage from the Middle East region. And he wanted to be the president who would end U.S. wars. But I think we are discovering, and he was discovering, that this is an empire that cannot be changed course by one person, no matter who he is. <clears throat> and it seems to me, even if Bernie Sanders become president, he's not going to be able to change the course of the U.S. empire and end it as a war empire. Uh, I think because there is a military intelligence apparatus which is at the helm, which decides uh, against sometimes the wishes of the president. I mean, look how whenever uh, Obama wanted to withdraw some troops from Afghanistan or Trump wanted to withdraw troops from most places in the Middle East, and he wasn't able to. Uh, and not only because of the resistance of people in the military, but also in the media, as well as in the congressional establishment of both parties. So the U.S. war empire have the support, overwhelming support of the media, the think tank, human rights merchants in Washington, D.C. and in Europe, as well as, uh, you know, the two party system of the United States. They all want to maintain that system. Uh, Donald Trump, however, has his own idiosyncrasies. I mean, he with he violated the agreement with Iran. Let us remember that this nuclear agreement, the media portrays it as uh, you know, Trump simply withdrew from that agreement as if it's a very normal, casual act. In reality, he violated international law because this agreement, after it was endorsed by the United Nations Security Council, attained the status of international law. 
So when the U.S. withdrew, so to speak, it basically violated international law and the U.N. Security Council resolution. But of course, the media packaged it quite differently. By that withdrawal, Trump wanted to leave his imprint. This is a man who wanted to leave his name on buildings, casinos, hotels, what have you. And he wanted to leave his imprint, his name, on an international agreement. He was bothered that it carried the name of Obama. And I think he was willing to negotiate perhaps a similar deal if the Iranians were to, to come along. And thus far, they haven't, although they may be. Now, deciding on killing Soleimani and Mohandas in Iraq, this was clearly an act of machismo on the part of the president. I don't think he is aware of the consequences of his action. And the intelligence apparatus, from what I read in the U.S. media, were calculating that Iranians are not going to respond or retaliate in a massive way. And certainly they did not. I mean, the Iranian regime is not trigger-happy as America is. And they also have the calculation of a regime that wants to stay in power. And in that regard, I think that the response, as limited as it was, may have whetted the appetite of the United States and Israel to engage in more aggression. And these, and these are the dilemmas that are, are facing the Iranian regime. On the one hand, if it doesn't respond, or it's, if it responds in a very limited fashion, as it did, it will invite more Israeli and American aggression. And if it responds in a major way, it will basically give a license to the United States to bomb an already existing list of strategic sites that are very important for the Iranian regime. And let us face it, the tight sanctions are really creating suffering on the part of the regular average people of Iran. And the Iranian government is aware of the growing resentment. And they do not want to give yet another opportunity for the United States to incite more uh, protests and so on and exploit protests. I don't want to in any way sound that the people who are protesting are in any way agent of the United States. That is not to be the case. There are many reasons to complain about the Iranian regime. And the economic suffering is one of them, although the economic suffering is largely the work of the U.S. government and its brutal sanctions. Assad, um, how do you assess these reports? I've seen some reports or sort of implications, perhaps insinuations that perhaps Trump just sort of selected uh, the wrong option, right? So he was given in terms of strategy. So perhaps he was given several different options of uh, what he would see as repercussions to take against the Iranians by his generals. And they said, well, this is the most extreme thing you could do. Um, this is sort of one option. You could uh, uh, assassinate Qasem Soleimani, not expecting him to select that option. I, I mean, I, I, I've seen some sort of implications. This might have been the scenario um, and that um, Trump has kind of bungled into it himself and it's not the fault of the generals kind of thing. So how do you assess those kind of reports? Because, I mean, as as you've kind of uh, said already, um, there's this essentially uh, in uh, the US as in other Western nations, there's this kind of deep state where the security intelligence establishment really has a kind of um, death hold on the war policies of the, of our governments, especially the case in the UK as well, I think. Um, they, they seem to be driving all this kind of policy in reality, to me anyway. How do you assess this? I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the mainstream media in the West, uh, in the United States for sure, has become an outlet of the intelligence agencies more than the military. 
Uh, I mean, the Washington Post is really a vehicle of the intelligence community, as is the New York Times. And they have played that role for a long time. And the Guardian. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, we used to speak about the British press like the Independent and the Guardian as if they were, you know, bright light in the world of Western media. I mean, now they are some of the worst examples of mainstream Western media. I mean, I can tell you as far as the Middle East coverage is concerned, the Guardian and the Independent are far worse than even the crudeness of the New York Times, the Washington Post, in carrying favors with the empire. I mean, the Independent has entered into an agreement with the Saudi government, and the results of the agreement are everywhere to be seen, not only in the the tremendously propagandistic Arabic version of the Independent. I mean, you have to read it in Arabic to to appreciate uh, what I'm saying. Uh, Now, uh, you're right in what you said, the leaks that we read. I mean, the military intelligence community want to have it both ways. On the, on the one hand, they want to agitate for war against Iran. But on the other hand, they want to shirk responsibility and blame it on Trump. I mean, look, this is not a well-read president. This is not a president known to read his briefing books and so on. I mean, I think that he is going to reach the conclusion that the people around him are going to push forward. And clearly, when they presented the example or the option of killing Soleimani, from what we read in the mainstream media itself, they made it sound to him, especially by Gina Haspel, they made it sound as if it's going to be a you know, very minor thing that will have no mm-hmm. consequences. But I think we should wait to see or assess the consequences of this action. This is the law of unintended consequences is going to apply to this very act. And I would refer you to the first speech that Hassan Nasrallah, leader of Hezbollah, gave right after the assassination, in which he spoke about a long-term campaign to rid the Middle East region of U.S. military presence. And I think that we should not look at Iranian response in the Iraqi, uh, the American occupied base in Iraq as being the only response. I think we are now entering a new era, the features of which will become known in the next months or years to come. Assad, let's talk about Israel's role. Israel's role. From, from the Western media, we learned that Israel is merely a bystander and a neutral observer. Israel has nothing to do with whatever is <laughs> happening in the Middle East. Poor Israel, Never. why are we picking on Israel all the time? Israel is just money, its own occupation and aggression, and trying to live in peace and security. That's all it wants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, NBC and Reuters reported just about a week ago that informants in Damascus, of course, tipped off the CIA about exactly which plane Soleimani would be on, which Israeli intelligence confirmed and verified. Uh, And then, according to the New York Times, Netanyahu was likely the only U.S. ally in the know regarding the assassination, having spoken to U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just beforehand. And that's reporting from the Jerusalem Post. However, as you said, like Netanyahu tried to downplay his role in the assassination just after it happened. Why would Israel downplay this? Um, wh- well, how, I mean, how, uh, how would, yeah. Israel, when Israel downplays its role, it's insulting the intelligence of anybody who knows anything about the Middle East. But it's also giving <laughs> basically the talking points to the Western media, because the Western media basically just whatever the Israeli propaganda line is. I mean, look at the coverage of Western media in the war in Syria. I mean, whether it's Martin Shulov, one of the worst correspondents uh, the, in the Guardian newspaper, or whether it is Liz Sly of the Washington Post, one of the worst correspondents to ever cover the Middle East region. I mean, they all, whenever they speak about <laughs> Israel, they would add the line, Israel has largely kept out of the war in Syria when it has bombed right. Syria merely 
over 300 times. I mean, that, by the definition of the Western media, is staying out of a conflict in the region. I mean, look, uh, in my... And armed al-Qaeda in the same way that the Americans right, and the right, French... Right. I mean, did. Israel is not only involved in any, every regional conflict since 1948, whether the war in Yemen, whether the war in, in Sudan, and whether the war in Iraq with the Kurds, and whether the civil war in Lebanon, whether the war in Jordan in 1970, every regional conflict and every internal conflict in the region, Israel is always involved and always on the worst side, usually on the side, always on the side of the fascist reactionaries of the region, from Lebanon to the Sahara to Sudan, every conflict in the region. Uh, Syria, since the civil war, has become a place that was highly penetrated by Israeli intelligence. And this is due to the close ties that Israel has built with a variety of rebel groups, particularly those that are affiliated, fans of bin Laden, let us call them that, to make it very clear. We're talking about Nusra Front as well as ISIS factions and so on. And this has exposed a variety of people working for the so-called resistance access to attacks and assassination by the Israelis and the Americans. And I have to say, though, the American media and the Western media in general portrayed this attack on Soleimani as if it was a great coup for Israeli or American intelligence. I mean, look, this is a man who does not travel in any secrecy. This is a man who goes to battlefields and takes selfies with reporters as well as with fighters. So it's not like he was in living in the shadows and the Americans were able to penetrate through his secrecy. Uh, so it wasn't that big of a coup to get them. The decision is the biggest decision to make and without worrying about consequences. Uh, so the Israelis are certainly collaborating with the Americans in trying to pinpoint targets in order to bomb or, or assassinate and so on. Um, yeah, could you uh, talk a little bit about the significance of Qasem Soleimani uh, in the Arab world, like who he was to the peoples of the region? Um, th there's a lot of the kind of uh, stuff in uh, the US and the UK, even from liberals about how, you know, they might criticize Trump because of the consequences, but they'll say, well, Qasem Soleimani, you know, he was a terrible man and he killed Americans and all this kind of thing. But I think he's regarded in a very different way from most people in the region. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that and maybe a little bit about the sectarian dimensions too? Right. Well, I think there are two Qasem Soleimani's. There's the Qasem Soleimani of real life, uh, he was killed, and there is the Qasem Soleimani who is presented in Israeli, American, Western media, as well as Gulf, Gulf regime media. Uh, and I think that uh, there are differences between the two different Soleimani's. I mean, there's no question that this is a guy who was instrumental in building what is called the axis of resistance. But it is by no means that he is the mastermind. I mean, <clears throat> there has been such exaggeration about his role as if he was the one who was behind the creation of Hezbollah, the party of God. I mean, let us face it, Soleimani was very, very junior at the time when Hezbollah rose into prominence in the 1980s with the attacks on Americans and Israelis and so on. So he was not as uh, crucial as it's being portrayed. His role came later, especially after the year uh, late 1990s, that's when he became really heavily involved in this so-called axis of resistance. And he was able to basically marshal the resources and organize a variety of forces to bring them together into one front. Uh, that was really his success. Uh, but I would say that in the uh, within the ranks of the axis of resistance, Hassan Nasrallah, for example, is more senior 
than Soleimani, as odd as that may seem to people who are relying on the Western media. The leader of Hezbollah. Correct, the leader of Hezbollah. I mean, within Iran itself, he's become very prominent, and he has an aura and charisma that was clearly manifested in the millions of mourners who came uh, after his assassination. And the fact that millions turn out in one of the largest funerals in recorded history tells you how much you cannot rely on Western media. I mean, Western media and the U.S. government actually said hours after his assassination that the people of Iran are happy. And we saw millions of people. And to this very day, you find Western reporters and Western officials who basically saw a picture of 20 people in the streets running in somewhere in Iran, nobody knows where, and they were chanting against Soleimani, say, look, they don't like Soleimani. Just as this morning, I saw a picture that a former Bush White House official posted on Twitter in which something like 20 people are chanting against Iran to say, look, these are the people of Iraq. They do not like Iran. So you have to disregard tens of thousands of people who turned out in protest against the U.S. embassy. So in other words, dozens of people protesting in line of U.S. foreign policy are more significant than literally millions who demonstrate in the region against the wishes of the United States and Israel. This is how public opinion is read by the myopic eyes of the West and, and of Israel as well. So Soleimani, on the one hand, for people who cared about uh, the so-called resistance axis, resisting America and Israel and Western uh, uh, and Gulf regimes and so on, he was regarded as a hero for sure. And beyond the Shiite community, he certainly has an aura within the ranks of those who cared about Palestine. I mean, look at the reaction among the Palestinians. Hamas received criticism and wrath of Gulf regimes because it sent a high-level delegation. The leader of Hamas went to Iran to offer condolences, and there were condolences offered in Gaza itself on his behalf. That tells you that there is among the Palestinians and support of the Palestinian gratitude for the role Soleimani played in delivering materials and weapons to various resistance groups. And it's not entirely certainly Shiite group because Hamas is Sunni. Most of the Palestinians are Sunni Muslim. And in fact, in the last few years, Soleimani has arranged for the de delivery of aid and weapons to even secular groups like the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. This is a new development in expanding the scope of Iranian assistance to resistance groups in the Middle East region. I believe I saw that Leila Khalid had praised him as a son of Palestine. Absolutely right. Leila Khalid, uh, the famous uh, uh, Palestinian struggler from the 1970s of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. But on the other hand, the Gulf regime media, of course supported by Israel and America, have been agitating in a very blatant sectarian way against anything that Iran does, portraying their actions and policies, all of them, as if they are part either of a Persian empire expansion or of a sectarian Shiite vision. And that has, to an extent, succeeded. There are people who look at the situation now through sectarian prisms. And of course, those uh, definitely is the case among those who support fanatical uh, fundamentalist Islamist groups whether it's ISIS, whether it's uh, Muslim Brotherhood, and people of the like. Can you talk a little bit about Hezbollah's role in this um, and, and maybe looking at it you know, through the lens of like what the Palestinian resistance, um, how the Palestinian resistance has grown 
Do you see a possibility of Israel escalating um, violence against uh, people in Gaza? Or is that possibility sort of uh, far-fetched now that Hezbollah, Iran, um, and, and other partners of Palestinian liberation in the region are becoming more of a force in, in Israel and the U.S.'s eyes? Well, I think here is the role of Soleimani. I mean, I think Soleimani and others within that axis has supplied a resistance group, whether in Lebanon, whether it's in Palestine, with enough uh, missile power uh, and with enough battle uh, skills and equipment that Israeli casual invasions of Arab lands, especially Lebanon and Palestine, have become quite unthinkable or not as easy as it used to be, for sure. And when I think Lebanon, when I grew up in Lebanon when I was a child in the 1960s, Israeli invasions of Lebanon, penetrations, assault, were almost weekly or bi-weekly. I mean, since the humiliation of Israel in its defeat in 2006, Israel has not invaded Lebanon since. This is an incredible development. And that is due to the fact that the resistance that was formed against Israelis from the 1980s all the way culminating in the humiliation of Israel in 2006 tells you that there is a deterrent. There were never any deterrent before. Arab regimes failed to compose a deterrent against Israel. And yet non-state actors have succeeded. And that's true in Gaza and that's true in Lebanon. For that reason, I do not discount the ease in which Israel may contemplate invading any of these lands. Uh, and, and that's it all, as I said, played by Qasem Soleimani and supplying these groups. Uh, however, what I see is continuation of wars by other means, either through assassinations, covert actions, and the like. But also, there is something else going on, which is Arab regimes, uh, under the guy, under the leadership of Saudi Arabia and Egypt and so on, they are trying to suppress Palestinian resistance by any means. And Hamas has become quite domesticated, and there are negotiations going on through the Egyptians in which Hamas will agree to a very long ceasefire with the Israelis. So Hamas is changing in a way that is very much similar to the development of the Fatah movement in the 1970s, 80s, when it agreed to surrender to Israel and agreed to the Oslo Agreement. Uh, so the Palestinian resistance is really at an impasse. Uh, there is a choice given to the Palestinians. Either you continue in policies of the Palestinian Authority, in which the Palestinians are in a state of forced surrender, or there is a possibility of creating uh, new avenues and forms of resistance and organizations of resistance. The forms of resistance are known. Armed struggle is the only one that succeeded against an aggressive enemy like Israel. But there are there's a need for new organizations. And the Palestinian people have, be, have been always very creative. Whenever one organization or movement is defeated, they are always able to manufacture new forms and new organization for resistance. And I see something like that coming out. Uh, but uh, having said all that, uh, still, there is enough resistance in Gaza to make Israel think thrice before it invades again. So what you're saying in a nutshell is that uh, Soleimani helped to provide the Palestinian and Lebanese resistance with deterrence. There's no question about that. I mean, I don't want to deny agency. Look, resistance by Lebanese and Palestinians against Israel would not have been possible without the willpower, without the dedication, without the training, the discipline, the focus exhibited on part of Palestinians and Lebanese. But there is no question that Iran through Soleimani have provided these groups with uh, you know, support and arms 
that have been denied to them by Arab regimes for many decades. Arab regimes used to provide very symbolic support for Palestinian groups in order to prevent them from resisting. The Saudis used to give money to the Fatah movement in order to control it, to prevent its revolutionary potential. And they succeeded to a large degree. Uh, there, in other words, there are less strings attached are given to these groups today by the Iranians that then there was given by Arab governments, whether the Syrian government, the Iraqi government, the Libyan government, and the Saudi government that in the past gave symbolic support, but they did not want in any way to push for the humiliation of Israel in the battlefield because they were scared of Israeli responses. Well, we're going to leave it right there. And we're, of course, going to have you back on to discuss uh, how this is all going to continue to play out in the region. Asad Abu Khalil, you're a professor at California State University, Stanislaus. You can uh, reach him on Twitter at Asad Abu Khalil. We'll have a uh, link to his Twitter and more of his work on the Electronic Intifada uh, podcast blog post that accompanies this. Asad, as always, thank you so much for your work and for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you very much. Always nice to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, bye. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>